You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 29 West Tolpehawken Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. So we are in a series this summer into the fall of Someone Asked Questions. And um, we're doing this because a dialogue of love holds us together. And we want to demonstrate that dialogue. In this meeting, we have that opportunity all the time through a talk and a talk back. As in our dialogue, we're always trying to listen for God and be led by the Spirit. So this week, we, we've gathered a whole lot of very good questions. Um, and each one of the pastors is speaking to a different one. So if you want to hear more of these questions answered, you can listen to um, the podcast online. The recordings are there. This week, I want to talk about a question someone asked saying, is it okay to be angry with God? I don't know about you, but I grew up in, uh, with the idea that Christians shouldn't be angry. The Bible has a lot to say about anger. Uh, Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, anger, and, and rage. James 1 talks about how we should be slow to anger because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Proverbs 29 talks about fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Ecclesiastes talks about anger residing in the lap of fools. And then Psalms, in Psalm 37, it says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. Those are just some of the examples. So if you've heard those, if you've read that, you also might have this idea that as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be angry. Um, Much less be angry with God. And if you're angry with God, it must mean that maybe you don't accept what God is giving you. And that must mean that you think everything that happens is dealt by the hand of God. It must be God's will. Can I be angry about God's will? Do I have to accept it as the best? You can see there's so many ways that this line of thinking can go. There's so many directions to go with this question. The problem of suffering and evil, the nature of God's will, the nature of, of free will of human beings and spiritual ones. As I'm sure you know, that whole books and classes have been uh, taught around these issues. So there's more here than I could ever talk about in one short talk. And there's so much that I don't know that I anticipate a lifetime of questioning and wrestling, and discovering, and trust. Human beings try to make sense of the world that we live in. And we are given that capacity by God to make meaning of the world around us and to tell stories about what's happening and why it's happening. And since the time of Augustine in the 5th century AD, this, this way of thinking that God is behind all the suffering and evil in the world has become widespread in the church. 
Uh, we just passed the anniversary of 9-11. And when, when that attack happened, um, this, this worldview, this way of thinking got expressed in various ways. There were religious spokespersons that publicly claimed that God was punishing America because of its sin and naming particular sins that brought on this judgment. So if we have to believe that everything is a part of God's wise and good and just plan, then we follow with all kinds of explanations for atrocious events. And, and Christians can usually find some Bible verse to back that up. When my niece was born without a diaphragm and her little lungs were not developing because her other organs were pushing up against her lungs as they grew, people, well, well-meaning Christians said to my brother and my sister-in-law, God knows what he's doing even though we can't understand it. His ways are not our ways, and things like that. As if it was God's design for her to be born and then slowly suffocate as her body grew. Thankfully, an incredible team of medical professionals at CHOP were able to build the rest of her diaphragm, and she is now a healthy, spunky little four-year-old. But there are plenty of times that things don't work out like that. And the sentiment remains the same. Essentially, it's a perspective that God is behind everything that happens, which means that the ultimate reason that it happened is that God decided it was better to have it happen than not. There is a God-ordained reason for this plan. You've heard this, right? You, you might think this. This might be kind of how you make sense of things. It's sort of like this idea that the world works the way it does because God, it's God's blueprint. Like it's drawn out this way, the way it's supposed to be. Even if you don't think that evil and suffering was God's purpose or plan, but you believe God to be all-powerful, you might wonder why doesn't God intervene to stop all the horror and sorrow. And wrestling with this, especially when you're faced with it personally, certainly stirs up anger. Again, there's a lot of theology behind these ways of thinking, and it is worth exploring all of it. What you've absorbed, what you think, what you've been taught, what you understand through scripture, and I would encourage you to do that. Explore it. Talk about it. Connect with a cell. It's the best place to be to keep working through how you think about these things. I can't speak to all of it again. Um, so it occurred to me to start with the heart of the questioner. At one time or another, we're all this questioner, right? Like whether experiences of personal loss or injustice have made you angry, or atrocious events in the world history and ongoing evil of the world. There's a lot that we could be angry about. So my first response to this questioner is, and to us, 
is that it's okay to release your emotions to God. None of it is too much. God already knows what we think and feel. He formed our inmost being. The depths of us and all of our range of human experience is not too much for God. God is not too fragile. But maybe we think that um, it's our faith that's actually the fragile thing. If, if you feel like you just have a shred of faith that you're holding on to, it might seem risky to express your anger. Opening that can of worms might feel like too much. It'll complicate everything. It's, it's easier to keep your anger contained or hidden even. I want to say that expressing anger does not undermine our faith. It actually is a way to relate to God. It doesn't, it doesn't require a lot of faith and trust to relate to God. That, that's all over the Bible. There are plenty of people that had hardly any faith at all. They were just like people in Philadelphia, angry, alone, confused. Lots of people in the Bible questioned God and blamed God and cried out in frustration, wondering if God even cares. So take heart. If you are in that place, you are in good company. And you can relate to God through your anger. Sometimes it is our anger, in our anger, it may seem to us as if God is nowhere to be found. Uh, working through anger can help us to locate God again, perhaps in surprising ways. I think that being honest about our anger really does help us sort out where to locate the mystery of why the world is so unfair and seemingly arbitrary. The story of Job in the Old Testament is, is famous because he is a man who suffered. And he was wrestling with the question of suffering. Job was the most upright person. He had lots of wealth and family, and one by one, he, he loses it all. His 10 kids die, his wife, all of his possessions and property and livestock, and then even his health. He's, he's reduced down to uh, a guy with sores all over his body. And his friends come, and they sit with him, and they immediately launch into this logic that you must have done something to deserve this. They're trying to make sense of the suffering. They're trying to locate the mystery of this horror and loss. But Job won't go with his friends. He turns to God. Only he starts in this place where he can't see. He says, if only I knew where to find God, I would lay out my arguments. He's so deep in his suffering that God seems nowhere to be found. So questioning God, begging for answers, but also acknowledging that God is beyond comprehension. Job, Job's willingness to submit at the beginning of this epic poem, this epic story, um, changes to rage 
as his despair deepens. His theology actually is consistent with his friend's assumption that God is behind all this adversity in life. He starts by saying, you might have heard this this verse, he starts by saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Sometimes that's been quoted in my life as like this acceptance, right? He may have started in submission to this assumption that God is doing something, but it moves, it's consistently moves on into your hands fashioned and made me, and now you turn and destroy me. Job doesn't reject God, even if his theology is wrong. His heart is honest with God. He is trying to work out what is happening to him. And his friends accuse Job, and Job accuses God. And God's response, there's three chapters of God's response, through uh, chapter 38 through 41. And it's so interesting. God's response in this poem is about creation. He describes the vastness and the complexity of creation. He doesn't even speak to Job's theology or to his friend's theology. He seems to be doing something else. He is changing the perspective to the vastness and the complexity of the cosmos and the human ignorance about the chaos in creation. Greg Boyd writes a very provoking book about, called Is God to Blame? And he writes about Job in, in the context of this question of evil and suffering. And he says, behind every particular event in history lies an impenetrable vast matrix of interlocking free decisions made by humans and angels. The mystery of evil, therefore, is about an unfathomably complex and war-torn creation, not about God's character and purpose in creation. He points to why there can be no one explanation for the question of suffering. The arbitrariness of life is a mystery to us. We cannot comprehend all that is going on. We see creation and we assume that God is directly or or indirectly controlling everything that happens and occurs in nature. And, And whatever seems arbitrary, we attribute that arbitrariness to God's will too, rather than to an element of chaos that exists in God's creation. He says, we experience life as arbitrary simply because we are finite. It takes some humility to recognize that we don't know all that's going on. In the end, Job himself responds. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand. He comes to know more of what he does not know. He acknowledges his finiteness, and God restores him. Again, without answering all of the theological questions about Job or the existence of suffering, I go back to the questioner, is it okay to be angry with God? 
Job's story suggests that there is much more going on in the cosmos than we can understand or comprehend. So yes, it is okay to be angry with God. Don't just hold on to it. Express it. Work with it. Don't let it be the reason to withdraw. Lean into it. Ask questions about it. Ask God questions. And listen to the question that God asks of you. The whole book of Job is full of it. Dialogue that responds to questions with questions is an excellent way or an excellent strategy for understanding and for wrestling. It's okay to wrestle with God and the complexities of life. There's another story in the Old Testament where the Lord wrestles with Jacob. And after that experience, he changes his name to Israel, which means one who strives or wrestles with God. I think that story is meant for encouragement for us too, because God's people, the Israelites, were to be a people who had a relationship with God in which it was okay to wrestle. I think to pray is to wrestle, to lean into a relationship with God that has room for our anger. Having a relationship with God involves God-human communication, right? We, we need it. It helps us to preserve our personhood in relationship with God. When we're angry in prayer, we're, we're relating to God. And the Psalms give us a good example, examples of what it looks like to pray honestly in our anger and give voice to the cries of our heart. In our pain, we can express our doubt and our questions. There are lots of examples of this, but Psalm 88 um, is maybe the darkest psalm there is. Because the writer starts with an address to the Lord God, my salvation, and then it just goes downhill from there. It doesn't end like the rest of the psalms of lament do, like, the rest of them end by declaring praise or hope for what will be fulfilled. And Psalm 88 just ends with, darkness is my closest friend. The writer talks about being overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. He says to God, you have overwhelmed me with your waves. My eyes are dim with grief. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they, they uh, surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me neighbor and friend. Darkness is my closest friend. Reading this psalm reminded me of my friend's words about how grief and anger can come and go like waves, especially when we feel like they're waves from God engulfing us, terrors sweeping over us, destroying us. We need the reminders from others who have been there too. And that's how my friend, that's, that's how my friend was describing this to me. 
even remembering her own waves. The waves ebb and flow. Sometimes the intensity of them is exhausting and overwhelming. And if you've ever been in the ocean, you know that rather than fighting the waves, when you allow them to wash over you, you can stay afloat. Rather than trying to stop the waves of anger and grief from coming, we need to feel what we're feeling and be able to think about what we're feeling. To ask questions about what God actually did and and what God is doing to respond to our suffering. When we're in that darkness, it helps to be with others who can remind us that Jesus suffered the ultimate darkness. Even when we think about think that no other human on earth can understand our grief or our anger. God understands it and shares in it. But taking the risk to name it and to share it with someone else um, opens us up to people who can represent and bring Jesus' love to stay with us in the darkness and anger without shutting it down. Together we can see again that God didn't stay in the self-protected, distant, heavenly zone, but he entered our suffering himself. Instead of ignoring the evil, he enters it. Our knowledge of God's character and will is in God's self-revelation through Jesus. Jesus manifests God's will and God's character by healing, not by afflicting illness. Instead of avoiding us, he puts himself right in the middle of our suffering to start the process of regeneration right there. And so now his followers can do the same. We can go into our darkness, the darkness of our anger and doubt, and face it, not alone. We can lament and cry and grieve and trust that the work of renewal and restoration that was begun in Jesus will be carried out to completion. I think we pray and live and counsel and comfort best when we keep our eyes fixed on the God we know in Jesus. Remembering that we pray in a sea of ambiguity not because we are fallen, but because we are finite. And sometimes we need to ask for help, not just from the people around us, but even seek professional help. And we have Circle Counseling as a resource to offer professional psychotherapy for anyone who needs help to work through what has brought them anger and where where it will take them. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.